How can Adam Smith change your life? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Russ Roberts. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today our guest is Russ Roberts. Russ is the John and Jean Denault Research Fellow at the Hoover Institution. Roberts has taught at George Mason University, Washington University in St. Louis, University of Rochester, Stanford University, and UCLA. He earned his PhD from the University of Chicago. He hosts the weekly podcast Econ Talk, which features hour-long conversations with guests. Past ones include Milton Friedman, Thomas Piketty, and Christopher Hitchens, just to name a few. He's written several excellent books that make economics and economic history accessible and fun to read. One of his books, How Adam Smith Can Change Your Life, is the one that we will focus our conversation on today. Russ, thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. Great to be with you, Alex. So Russ, in each episode, we start with a question and take us wherever the discussion and answers lead us. So let's kick it right off. Russ, how can Adam Smith change your life? Well, Adam Smith wrote two books. Uh, one is really famous, the other not so famous. The famous one is called The Wealth of Nations. The not so famous one is called The Theory of Moral Sentiments. Uh, most people don't know anything about the theory of moral sentiments. That includes most economists. Uh, they never read it. They don't read so much of the Wealth of Nations either, but they have some idea of what's in it. The Wealth of Nations is about how nations get wealthy, uh, why some stay poor, the power of the division of labor, the power of uh, free trade, and a thousand other interesting observations along the way. He's a very, Adam Smith's a very thoughtful thinker, and he's a very, very good writer, very clear writer. Uh, as long as he's writing about something that that you know about, you know you probably don't know much about uh, silver. So the chapter on silver is going to be uh, daunting in the Wealth of Nations. But the rest of it you can just you know pick up and read quite a bit and just enjoy. He's a very good stylist. The theory of moral sentiments is very different and surprising to people who only know the Smith of the Wealth of Nations. Uh, it's a set of insights about human nature. It's advice on how to live. It is. Uh, his advice on how to lead what I would call the good life and what you should do morally as well as what will bring you happiness. Now, he didn't understand happiness the way a modern American or Western uh, European or Canadian would. He understood it in a much, I think, deeper way. And he would, I would say it differently. I'd say he was thinking about satisfaction, about serenity, about the things that bring us deep and lasting comfort in life. And that's what that book is about. It's not about how to have a good time on a Friday night, um, but it's about how to live and uh, why we do what we do to the extent that we struggle to live well. So in that sense, that it is a, I agree, it's the, it's the greatest self-help book you've never heard of or never read. It's a book of insights into human nature and yourself that can help you thrive. And exactly on, on as you said, self help book. One of my questions before we get into some of the lessons that you describe in your book, and as well, we can we can learn from Adam Smith. I, it's interesting. I, I think someone coming to this cold, or either they're not familiar with Adam Smith or the theory of moral sentiments specifically, they might think, well, there's there's so many self help books out there, Russ. They may say, why would anyone want to listen to like a Scottish guy from 250 years ago? Before we jump into the specific lessons, I'd like you to get a little bit more into Smith and, and why we think we should pay attention to this this work as well. The way I would think about that is that there's some fields we make progress in. Uh, it's physics. Uh, we know a lot more about the physical world. We know a lot more about engineering. We know a lot more about chemistry than we did 250 years ago. Not clear to me we know a lot more about human nature. We know 
a little bit more. And as Ronald Coase, a great economist, uh, once said, some of that's even true, what we know about human nature. Of course, some of it's not. So it's not a steadily progressing field, the study of, say, psychology or human nature, or, right. or better yet, happiness studies. Uh, our, our understanding of that is always uh, challenging. And it's, you know, people read books that were that are much older than 250 years to get insights into how to live. Uh, they read the Bible. Uh, they read Aristotle. They read uh, the Stoics. There's a lot of wisdom in the ages that is timeless. And I would suggest that uh, this guy who lived with his mom and sat most of his life sitting in the parlor of his or, or in a classroom in uh, in Scotland uh, has something to teach us. And I think we moderns have something to learn from him. At the beginning of your book, you note how Adam Smith in one right at the beginning of his book started off and, and it, it hooked you. Although in, in your book, you describe that it was sort of hard for you to originally get into it uh, in terms of the writing style, etc. You still quote this part here. How selfish soever man may be supposed, there are evidently some principles in his nature that interest him in the fortune of others and render their happiness necessary to him, though he derives nothing from it except the pleasure of seeing it. And you said that he packed a lot into that initial statement that helps us kick off our journey in the theory of moral sentiments. So a lot of people misunderstand Smith. They think of him as a uh, believer in the selfishness of human beings. He did not believe people were selfish. He believed, I think correctly, that we are self-interested. We care inevitably more about ourselves than we care about others. Uh, and he saw our caring in, I would say, a set of, of rings of intimacy, of circles of intimacy, we care more about ourselves than we do even about our family, but we care more about our family than we do about our neighborhood. We care more about our neighborhood than we do about our country. We care more about our country than we do about the world. Now, we often decry this, uh, but his view was that that's a fact. And I, I think that's an interesting and useful place to start. We might wish it were otherwise, but Smith starts with that insight, which I think is mostly true, that we have circles of caring and affection that dissipate as we move outward from ourselves that are less strong. And then he said, well, okay, if that's true, and of course, Smith is writing in 1759, he doesn't know about uh, Darwin. He doesn't know about any uh, hardwiring of the brain through evolution. He's just got his armchair knowledge of, of what he's observed in life. And he notices that people are pretty self-interested. And I think for modern people who have a different uh, biological perspective on that. That's a very natural assumption to start with. I think it also, uh, you know, confer conforms very well to our own personal experience. Uh, I don't think it's a shocking claim. So we're self-interested, but we're not selfish, or at least not all the time and not totally. So Smith was interested in the question, given that we're pretty self-interested and that we think mostly about ourselves in our daily uh, daydreaming, why do we ever do anything nice for anybody else? Like what's the what's the motivation for that? And I think that's a that's a good place to start. It's where Smith starts, and he's puzzled by it because he does understand the biology, not the underlying uh, genetic origins of of self interest. But he understands that we mostly care about ourselves, and he has a lifetime of experience watching people act selfishly occasionally, if not most of the time, or self interestedly. So then, what motivates us to do? good things for other people? Why are we nice to not just our family, but to, but to strangers? Uh, what's the 
what's the explanation for that? And you know, I think at his time, most people would say things like religion. They would say the way you're raised. They would say your conscience uh, and so on. What made Smith distinctive and what makes the book distinctive, at least given my knowledge of 1759 um, theorizing about this, is that Smith said the reason we do nice things is, is we care about what other people think of us. He said we have a benevolent side. We have a, a what we would call an altruistic side. He said, but the phrase he uses, that's a very thin reed to lean on, meaning it'll, if you lean against it, it's going to snap or, or bend over mm-hmm. very quickly. It's not a very reliable predictor of what people do. And what he was saying essentially is that we do have a conscience, but our conscience is mainly coming from our concern of how we will be perceived by others and by ourselves. He has this very interesting metaphor of an impartial spectator, uh, someone who might be watching from the outside, that is a spectator, someone who is watching us. And the beauty of, of that of the idea of impartiality is that when we step away from ourselves, when we step out of ourselves and look down on ourselves objectively, not subjectively, when we look down at ourselves from the perspective of someone who is disinterested, who doesn't have a stake in it, we suddenly perceive our behavior in a very different way than we naturally observe it through our own eyes. Smith sometimes calls this, as he would in 1759, the man in the breast, to modernize it, the person who is our alter ego, the, the one who watches us. Uh, you might think of that as someone perched on your shoulder, keeping an eye or the person over your shoulder, thinking, why, why are you doing that? And you realize when you think in that those terms that your natural impulses are sometimes ones that you wish you didn't have. Uh, we can see this all the time in in our behavior, say with with food. You know, why is it that I might compulsively eat something when I know that if I stop and think about it, it's not a good idea? And sometimes I still eat it anyway. Pausing is is not harmful. It doesn't always help though. Uh, but in more interesting cases, ethical issues decisions about how to behave at work, how do we treat the, our loved ones, how we treat our children and our spouses. Take another example I use in the book. Uh, a lot of times when our children pull on us for our time and attention, it's easy to say, ah, one time I'll just, I can skip this time. I'll miss this game, this soccer game. I won't help with the homework. I have a, I had a hard day at work. I need to relax with the with some sporting event or so on. And what Smith encourages us to do is to look at that behavior the way someone from the outside might, or the times that I raise my voice with my family, my children or my spouse. And I, you know, I, in the moment I think, well, of course I'm angry. I should be. And they treated me fill in the blank or they're doing that thing I hate. But actually when you, if the idea that someone could be hearing you and watching us from outside your family, it's, it's absolutely horrifying. So what's that about? So Smith understood that that, that self-awareness is a powerful, he, he uses it both as a way to think about why we ever do the right thing. That is, we do act sometimes as, as if someone were watching. And of course, many times people are watching us. They are observing how we behave. And he also uses it, and I use it in the book, as a way to think about how if you want to be a better person, if you want to behave in ways that are what he calls lovely, uh, you 
can use this metaphor of an outside observer to step outside yourself, which is incredibly hard to do, but to step outside yourself and say, you know, if someone were watching me, would I be proud of what I'm doing? And it's a very, I think, a very powerful way to to improve yourself. You have these two important pillars. On the one hand, understanding self-interest as opposed to selfishness, as you said. It's understanding that distinction is important. So self-interest on the one hand and the impartial spectator on the other is the first step on the journey you lay out in your book under the heading, How to Know Yourself. Basically, this is one of the first steps, if you will, and how Adam Smith can change your life and the way you look at things. Exactly. And you move on in the book to, okay, now that we understand that, we're talking about how to be happy. So I really like the way you, you structured the book as well, because I think it's, it's really awesome, the, the journey that the reader goes on. And now, after we understand ourselves a little bit better, when we think of the concept of happiness, we kick it off with one of Adam Smith's quotes, and so do you. You, you, you quote him as he says, man naturally desires not only to be loved, but to be lovely. And of course, he's also using love and lovely differently than we may use it now and throw it around every day. So when, when, we get into, when we first get into how love and lovely may be interpreted a little differently when we're talking about Smith and, and exactly what a statement means as well. So loved in, you know, in our day is a romantic concept or it might be a, a sense of appreciation. Uh, and lovely usually means physically attractive or uh, you know, aesthetically pleasing to the eye. But Smith meant it much more broadly than that. When he talks about our natural desire to be loved, uh, what what he's saying is that we want to be appreciated, we want to be respected, we want to be praised, we want to matter. Uh, that's important to human dignity, is what he's really saying there, and you know, also human happiness. But again, I want to emphasize that when I use that word, I'm using it really in the 18th century sense, not the modern sense. Um, I think there's a a very common perspective in modern life that the goal should be happiness mm -hmm. uh, uh, of life. And I, I don't believe that the way it's usually, the words usually used. Uh, I don't want to be happy all the time. I want to be sad when it's appropriate to be sad. Uh, I want to mourn when it's time to mourn. Uh, I want to be moved and I want to appreciate the bittersweetness of life. Uh, if it's all sweet all the time, it's not much, uh, it's not living. I don't seek out suffering, but I don't think we should run from it uh, all the time. And I think the, so when, when Smith talks about happiness or when I talk about happiness, he does not mean the modern uh, party kind of happiness. Right. He means satisfaction and contentment. So what Smith's saying is that if you want to be content, uh, if you want to have a satisfying life, you have to be loved. You for most people. There are exceptions, of course, but most people uh, want to be appreciated. They want to be praised, respected. Uh, they want to be honored, and they want to be treated as if they matter. And then he says, and you want to be lovely, uh, meaning worthy of praise, praiseworthy, worthy of merit, worthy of love, worthy of respect. So there are people who have those uh, honors, who are praised, honored, respected, but aren't actually lovely. They're not praiseworthy, but they fooled people or they've used other means. And Smith talks about those different means. He says, really, there's there's two ways to be loved. Uh, one way is to be uh, rich, powerful, or famous. And if you look at the people who are rich, powerful, or famous, or especially those who are all three, they get a lot of attention. They matter a lot. They walk into a room and all eyes turn toward them. We want to hear what they have to say. We want their opinion. Uh, they, they walk around in a glow 
in a bubble of uh, a froth of attention and uh, people praising and honoring and uh, bowing to them. And Smith says, that's not the right way to get loved. He says, it it works, uh, but it's not so good for you. You'll you choose that path, he calls it the glittering path. It's the one that appeals to us often, the, the desire to, to acquire money, the desire to acquire fame, the desire to acquire power. He says, you know, you're going to do some things along the way that are not lovely, that are actually ugly. They'll, I say, I use the phrase, they'll, you know, they'll corrode your soul if you're not careful. Smith says the real way to get uh, to be loved is to be virtuous and wise. And that's a lot harder. That's the less glittering path. It's the quieter path. It's the path that uh, is takes a longer time. It's not as uh, obvious it's going to turn out. But the wise and virtuous people also get praise and honor and respect. They also matter. Um, it's just that's a harder road to travel. And Smith urges us to t- choose that road rather than the other one. In fact, he says more than that. He really says that if you pursue wealth for its own sake, you're really you know, playing a fool's game. It won't make you happy. Uh, not only will you do things that you regret, perhaps, in the pursuit of it, but you will also find that when you have it, it doesn't particularly lead to contentment. Uh, it's a beast that can never be sated. And um, uh, you will get attention paid to you, but your daily life won't be so necessarily any more pleasant than it otherwise would. So Smith has a whole bunch of wisdom there, I think, for how to live. And um, it was in 1759 when he wrote it, when celebrity was very different than celebrity today. But yes. the lessons are exactly the same. I, li- I like the way you t- said celebrity is different then than now. I went, When I was in Scotland and I w- visited a few graveyards, when I went to Adam Smith's grave, I also went to where David Hume was buried, or at least his, uh, his, his tomb was, if you will. And... Uh, the the wooden plaque outside of the graveyard uh, made me smile. Celebrities in this graveyard underneath David Hume. <laughs> yeah, oh, that's awesome. And uh, yeah, and, and I thought, yeah, he's that's famous. a different word. Yeah, he's famous. He's not a celebrity. He's not so famous even. You know, he's one of the least known uh, 18th century people that people have heard of. A few people have heard of him, but not so many. Yeah, we definitely use the word a little differently now, for sure. Yeah. That, that plaque was put up somewhere awesome. in the early 1900s. Yeah, it was pretty great. And uh, and and before you move on, ultimately, uh, to, to the chapter that you call How Not to Fool Yourself, you, you end off the chapter in how to be about how to be happy with the following uh, statement. And I, I think it's a great lead into the next part of our conversation here. You say, quote, our biggest challenge comes from ourselves. We so much want to be lovely that we can convince ourselves of our loveliness when the reality is otherwise. The wise many may reject the praise he does not deserve, but it's hard to be wise. And it's our own praise that's the hardest to reject. Yeah. So because we're self-interested, we're constantly lying to ourselves about our behavior um, in the big and large sense of our behavior, right? The little spats that we get in to the people around us or the cashier at the, at the, at the coffee shop on the street. Uh, it's easy to feel aggrieved that somehow we've been wronged, that uh, we're not getting the fair shake in life. We're getting the short end of the stick. And that perspective, and of course there are people who it's true about, but often, uh, and those people just have bad luck or have, you know, misfortune. But, but for many of us, we live as if we're unlucky when we, we don't pay attention to the data. <laughs> we read the data right. through these biased eyes where, uh, we're always right. Um, 
it's very hard for us as human beings to judge ourselves with through the eyes of that impartial spectator. Uh, we have our own partial eyes, our partial spectator's self. It's constantly uh, reassuring ourselves. Oh, you, yeah, you did the right thing. It's constantly saying to ourselves, oh, yeah, that was his fault. That was her fault. Mm -hmm. And the challenge, I think, a huge challenge in life is being able to see yourself honestly. Now, we don't want to. Smith talks about it a lot. He says, um, you know, we, we don't like to see how we truly are. You know, if he, he, he has a thought experiment of, you know, imagining if people were honest to us. Uh, you know, we claim we want honesty. And you say, how do I look today? Or did you think that was a good piece that I wrote? Right. Or how was the dinner I cooked? You know, we claim we want an honest opinion. Sometimes we just want somebody to say, great job. And in fact, great job is that little uh, dopamine rush that follows it is the, a slightly addictive thing. And, and to you know, take self-criticism is harsh for most of us. We we just we'd rather not hear it. We like to dish it out, of course. It's easy for us to explain to other people how they've treated us wrong, or we were uh, they they did a did a bad job on this, or they didn't meet our expectations. And um, you know, there, I, I once read a book on being a running a small business and how when you're you're an employee in a small business, the boss is a jerk. He doesn't understand us. He treats us badly. He has his expectations are too high. And then maybe if you're lucky, one day you own your also your own small business, and it's you can't imagine that you're that jerk in the eyes of your employees. Right, right. You're, you're doing a great job. In fact, they're always loafing around and not doing what they're supposed. Right. So to think about how both sides are wrong, or both sides are sometimes right, is not intuitive to us. We are constantly deceiving ourselves, uh, partly as a self-preservation mechanism, right? Um, I went on a, a, I've been on a few silent retreats and one of the, uh, in those retreat, in the retreats I've been on, you're not, uh, supposed to look other people in the eye. Hmm. You're not supposed to interact with them. You're not supposed to at meals, gesture to them for, um, pass the salt. You just get up and get the salt. And when you pass them in the hall on the way to a, a meditation session, you don't greet them, obviously, because it's silent. But more than that, you don't smile. You don't look at them at all. Right. And, and when, you, when I tell people that, they go, well, that's, that's creepy. That's weird. That's even perverse. I mean, that's so un, unhuman, anti-human, cruel. But when you do it, after about 10 minutes, you realize that a huge portion of your life is adjusting your face in a way that you think the other people around you want it to look like. Right. When you are liberated from that, it, it's extraordinary uh, that you don't have to, that you're not judging them and to know that they're not judging you. And you think, well, oh, come on, who's, well, the answer is we all are. We're all constantly judging the people around us in, in subtle, not deep ways like this person's worthy of death. But things like, oh, that's why is that person looking like that? Or what's wrong with that person's mouth or, you know, fill in the blank. Right. And when you're liberated from that or when you become aware of it, you suddenly realize how much of our lives are, are those kind of small, small steps. And we're constantly fooling ourselves about how good we look, how appropriately we behave, how, oh, I said that the right thing there. Um, and I think those kind of self-deceptions, I mean, they're 
they're mandatory. Right. I mean, you literally can't live if you if you had to deal with what people actually thought of you day after day. A lot of what we call courtesy is simply the uh, self-deception that greases everyday life in ways that are necessary. You know, how are you? I'm fine. Is uh, it's a good starting place, even if it's not true. Right. <laughs> right it just, yeah. It's our shorthand way for saying to someone, uh, I, I'd like to talk to you as opposed to. I really want to tell you how I, how are you really? And that's sometimes I don't want to hear it and you don't want to hear me. Like how, how many times have, have one of us called somebody to probably maybe say something that's not actually going to be friendly or maybe not going to be the best conversation we start with. How are you? Yeah, exactly. And it's just a, it's a conversational gambit. It's a, yeah. it's a trivial example of the kind when I call it dishonesty, it makes it sound harsh, but it's um, again, the polite way to say it is courtesy or politeness. Uh, you know, saying thank you to someone you're not so grateful to or someone you're not in a good mood, I still think a very good idea. I don't think you should be, quote, brutally honest. But what Smith is teaching us, what he emphasizes our willingness to deceive ourselves and, and particularly about being lovely, you know, in a moment of impulsivity or stress or anger uh, or greed, when we do something impulsive, he says, you know, we silence that impartial spectator. But later, when we have time to reflect on it, we look back on it and realize, oh, I, I wasn't the right response. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have done that. And I, what Smith is doing there, he's trying to help us, again, do some form of self-therapy, some form of, of self-awareness about who we really are if we want to improve ourselves uh, and if we want to understand ourselves. And self-deception is an enormous challenge. And, and one of the things you quote him, uh, Smith is saying, is uh, he starts by saying self-deception is a fatal weakness of mankind. Fair enough. But then he goes on to say, and it's the source of half the disorders of human life. You know, a lot of people might <laughs> might put different things in front of that. They might say greed is the source of half the disorders of human life or other things that you, you commonly hear. But he's talking about uh, down to the core of what's in all of us, self-deception, the source of half the disorders of human life. Serious stuff. Yeah. The, the other example I'd use is, um, which I find uh, fascinating, partly because of spending most of my life in academic uh, circles. Uh, self-righteousness. Mm. Think about self-righteousness for a minute, or what we might call confidence. Uh, most of us are way overconfident about a thousand things. Uh, our politics, our religion, our unreligion, our self-perception. Uh, uh, we're remarkably insecure as human beings, and we cover that up with a an armor, a mask of, of self-righteous uh, confidence. And in my experience in life, uh, a lot of times the most confident people are the most insecure. And, and on the surface, that seems like a paradox. I mean, if they're insecure, how, how could they be confident? And the answer is because that's the way they deal with their insecurity. That's the way I do. I don't know about you, but a, a lot of my self-confidence in life is a, is a cover. It's an attempt to cope with the fact that I don't want people to find out I don't know what I'm talking about. I don't want people to find out that I have these urges that are shameful or that I don't, uh, I'm not proud of that. I, that I sometimes indulge in. I don't want people to find out I care about money, whatever it is, you, know, you name it. Right. There's a thousand things in our human daily, uh, headspace that, that, uh, are constantly, uh, hard to, to cope with. And I cover those up. I don't want to think about them. Smith points out, I don't want to see myself as a, as a flawed person. And, you know, I'm 65 years old. You know, when I was younger, certainly I, I was way overconfident and way over comfortable with who I was. And part of growing up, I think part of getting older is to, is to realize that 
that you're not as smart as you think. You're not as uh, good looking as you think. Fill in the blank. That wasn't my particular problem, but everybody has their own set of of challenges of of self self deception, and it's hard. Um, and as I mentioned before, some of it's you know it's a, it's a requirement to get by. You can't really you don't really want to see yourself as you actually are every minute because you you struggle to just to get by on da- in daily life. But but the other extreme, which is the person who says I'm never wrong. Everyone else is wrong. I've never misbehaved. Everyone else mistreats me. That person is um, is a child. I mean, that's how that's how right. we raise children. It's, it's a defense mechanism, really, that that our nature gives us that that is beneficial when you're 16 or 18 or 23, and as you get to be 40 and 50 and 60, you want to shed it if you can and take on a more a little more honesty. One thing I like you did at before the how not to fool yourself section ended in your book is you reminded people that this isn't just about emotions you may feel or how you deal with with a marriage or relationships about people around you. It's also something to keep in mind when we're talking about our preferred ideologies. Self-deception can play a huge part in that, you know, especially if people have very strong feelings about a certain political issue or a certain ideology. If you're a classical liberal, libertarian, you warn people that even with your ideologies to not fall into self-deception. It's always going to be there to some degree, but but I like how you reminded people to remember Remember that it's there. Yeah, it's hard to remember, and, and the reason is is that very few consequences to having a flawed ideology. Um, in some dimension, every single person has a flawed one because no ideology is probably reliable all the time in all situations. But you know what we do. You know, if I have, if I let's say I have, uh, I have, I actually do have four children. They're out of the house now, but let's let's say uh, uh, when they were younger. And I decided that I should have a uh, a two seater convertible as my car, our only family car. Well, I'd learned very quickly that that's an impractical decision. It's not ideal. It's comes with a lot of costs, and I right. probably very very quickly correct that misperception that that was the ideal car for me. But if I have a view that socialism is the best way to live, or uh, free market capitalism is the best way to live, or communism is the best way to live, or social democratic ideas are the best way to live. I, I can hold those views forever, and there's no cost to me. In fact, what I'm going to do is try. Most of us do is we try to find a circle of friends who share those views, and they're constantly reinforcing me that I've made the right decision to, right. to be a whatever it is, a social democrat, a classical liberal, a communist. They're going to tell me, yeah, of course we're right. The other people are wrong, and I never get any other feedback about that. I don't live. I don't have to live in a society designed by me. It's just a form of my self identity my political views. So that's okay. Uh, it's true about religion as well, or atheism, that you can find a community of people like you who reinforce your views. But it's not a bad thing to remember that you're probably not right. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you probably should have some agnosticism, some uncertainty about what the best way to live is, or what the right religion is, or what's the best ideology. And and the reason to, to have that am, that ambiguity is that it might help you get along with people who view the world differently from you. Maybe they're not fools. Maybe they're not evil. Maybe they're just right, right. like you. And I think that's a healthy thing for a, a democracy, a body politic, a community. And I think that's an excellent place to take a break as we're at that point. So everyone, you're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Russ Roberts today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions and feedback to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. 
A special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Liam O'Brien, Peter Jaworski, and Randy T. Simmons. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, at CuriousTaskILS, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Russ Roberts. So, Russ, uh, before the break, we just finished off a, our section of a discussion which related to how not to fool yourself. I'd like to move on to how to be loved and how to be lovely. Those were two separate chapters in your book, but I'd like to sort of deal with them as a couplet. We talked about knowing yourself and how to be happy earlier, but now we're talking about going beyond the distinction of understanding to be loved and lovely, but actually talking about how to do so. And, uh, you know, Smith kicks us off and you kick us off in your chapter when you wrote the book by saying, ultimately, there, there's two ways to be loved. You can be rich and famous, or you can be wise and virtuous. And Smith counsels us to do the latter. Yeah, and that's um, maybe framed out in a slightly different way mm-hmm. than we talked about it before. Right? One way to think about how to be virtuous or how to be happy is think about who you want as your friends. You know, what circle of friends do you want the respect of? And Smith doesn't really talk about this. So, you know, Smith's best friend was David Hume, who was an extraordinary man, many, many different dimensions. And his, you know, after Hume's death, Smith wrote some beautiful things about what an extraordinary human being mm-hmm. Hume was. And uh, so if you have friends like David Hume, you behave differently than if your friends are somebody else. Um, and, it's not just, I mean, part of what's, what Smith would say, I think, I was going to say what I would say, but let me say what I think Smith would say. Smith would say that being loved is earning the respect and honor and praise of people around you, but uh, who those people are is also up to you to some extent. And you want to pick honorable people to be uh, honored by rather than uh, less honorable people. And that's hard for us sometimes. You know, we're drawn to certain types of people, I think, for psychological and other types of reasons that are hard to understand or explain. And I think a lot of times people can get out of a a rut, can get out of addictive behavior, can get out of behavior that's just, you know, dysfunctional for them by choosing a different circle of friends. Of course, that's easier said than done. You can't just snap your fingers and say, I want a new set of friends. But a better way to think about it maybe is how you allocate your time. Time is is the fundamental scarce resource we have as human beings. We're only allotted a finite amount of it, and we can choose to spend it that finite amount on uh, games on our computer or phone, uh, helping other people, uh, laughing, uh, being with loved ones, uh, sharing experiences, going on vacation. We have a thousand ways to think about how we interact with the people around us, and Smith saying. And one way to think about what she was saying is to do that carefully, do it thoughtfully. Don't just be pushed along in the tide of what's easy or what's comfortable or what's um, what, uh, what's habitual to you. You should you should occasionally reflect on your choices of how you spend your time. In many ways, it's it's the most important choice we make, and it's often the one we think about the least. You know, big decisions to take a job, to get married, to have children. These are decisions that we obviously reflect on uh, the smaller decisions of how we spend our daily moments. Uh, and I talk about this in the book, they're eventually going to add up to a life. Uh, we think of them after the fact many times, you know, I wish I'd spent more time with 
my parents. I wish I'd spent more time with my children. I wish I'd spent more time with friends, less on my career or vice versa. You know, I didn't really use my gifts. I, I, I didn't think thoughtfully about how to do better with my, with my talents. Uh, these are questions that, that are hard for us to think on. We, you know, life sweeps us along. And Smith's counseling us to, to think about them more thoughtfully, to be reflective on them, and to do them in a way that, that would earn the respect and honor and praise of people we interact with. And, and I'm adding the point that we should, you know, think about who those people might be and try to spend more time with the ones that we think are worthy of our time. For sure. And, and be- before we move on to how to be good, I want to end off the how to be loved and lovely section with something that I thought was really interesting. So, you know, Smith reminds us that one of the ways to be lovely is to remember propriety. And instead of just explaining that, I thought it'd be great if, if you wouldn't mind to tell us the story of house sitting in Chile and, and meeting the housekeeper. Because I think that, that that was a perfect thing you did in the book. And it completely summed up everything we want to talk about when it comes to propriety. Well, see if I can remember the story. You read the book more recently than I did. I, I remember the story, but I, you, you'll help me with the propriety part. So I um, I was house sitting for some people and I, and I didn't realize that the house came with a, a maid. Not just a maid, but a live-in maid, and not just a live-in maid, but a live-in maid who cooked and was basically there as a, a housekeeper in the old-fashioned sense of the word. Uh, she was a single mom. She lived in a, a little hut, a little like shed in the on the grounds of the house. Um, it wasn't a mansion; but it was a nice house by you know I would say middle-class standards. But she was desperately poor, obviously, and this was the way she was keeping herself alive and her child. And uh, I came home from work the first day of house sitting. I was, sat in the, was sitting on the couch and a woman appeared from the kitchen and said, what do you want for dinner? And I thought, what kind of a question is that? I had no <laughs> idea what she meant. So I, I said something like, whatever you feel like or whatever it was. This was, uh, this was about 40 years ago, I guess. I said, what, what, I was in my 20s. I said, whatever you feel like. Well, that's not the right answer, it turns out. That's not the proper answer. That's not... That's not propriety. She expects in her role as housekeeper to be told what to make. So I said whatever she wanted and went back to reading or whatever I was doing. And I was very uncomfortable. The idea that a strange person was going to cook for me or I didn't know I wasn't paying myself. I, I was just weird. And you, and you noted that that she was uncomfortable. Like it was clear oh, from the facial sense that that question Absolutely. right there made her uncomfortable. And I didn't know what the right thing to say was, but okay. So she went back into the kitchen. And uh, I felt bad that she was cooking alone, so I went to chat with her, which made her even more uncomfortable, <laughs> naturally. Uh, but that was, in my culture, it would be weird for someone to to make a meal for me without socializing. So I went in, and we and I tried to make conversation with her in my bad Spanish. And and she, uh, I we didn't have much to talk about, obviously. But I asked her, you know, who she, what kind of music she liked, and she said uh, uh, Frank Sinatra and um, Julio Iglesias. Two people at the time I hated. <laughs> I had nothing to say. I actually love Frank Sinatra now, as I'm sure I point out in the book. But at the time, that this, this led to another awkward silence. So I thought, I'll try sports. So I, I was a soccer fan. And, of course, she was, too. But what's called football in, in Spanish. So uh, you know, I asked her what her team was. Well, she rooted for the team that the poor people liked. And I rooted for the team that the intellectuals liked. And so it was a total mismatch of of expectations in terms of cultural and social interaction. And I, all I had to do there was to do what was expected of me. And since I didn't know what that was, it was an utter failure. And I think that's uh, a lot of times in life, uh, propriety is underrated. Uh, I like to use the example of the dance floor. 
you go out on the dance floor and there's a natural impulse to to show how what a great dancer you are. But if you have a partner, what's proper propriety requires that you enhance the moves of your partner and, and to look good together. And then there's the other people on the dance floor. You don't want to step on their toes or bump into them. And so your urge to do uh, what might be in your own narrow self-interest is constrained or should be constrained uh, by the rules and cultural norms of where you're where you're at. And if you ignore those, you misbehave. And in, you know, in the case of the kitchen and the maid, I misbehaved by not knowing what the rules were. I didn't know how to interact with her. And on the dance floor, you misbehave if you're trying to attract attention to yourself and ignoring the costs you're imposing on, on the other people. And propriety are the norms that society expects of us. And we learn those if we're lucky. If we don't, we're that jerk on the dance floor who's always you know, bumping into other people, eventually doesn't get invited to parties anymore, <laughs> even, even if they're a great dancer. Right. Uh, so uh, propriety is, is, is underrated. Propriety is, um, especially in the modern era where we, we like to think there are no rules, we can do whatever we want. Um, and, and Smith was very different time, of course, but he, was, he emphasized the importance of that. But I, I assume the next thing you want to talk about is how to be how to be how to be good. Of course, yeah. If you want to roll right into it, let, let's let's for sure do that. So propriety is sort of a minimum standard. Uh, you conform to the expectations of those around you so that they can express themselves as appropriately. Uh, that means not talking all the time. It means not interrupting all the time. It means not stepping on people's toes on the dance floor, or figuratively in other settings. Uh, and so you know, I use I use a little different language from Smith to make it easier for for the modern ear, but Smith's rules of being good are, are pretty simple. Do the proper thing when you can. Uh, don't hurt other people. Like, don't steal their stuff. Um, and then the, uh, when you can, do good. And doing good's much harder than than it looks. And Smith spends a lot of time on that. Um, he, he calls it the becoming use of your own. That is your own money, your own time. You know, it's hard to know how to give charity in a way that actually makes a difference. It's hard to give people attention in a way that's helpful to them. Uh, oftentimes, we do things that we wanted that you know we hope are helpful or that we think are kind that actually have unintended consequences. Um, you know, the challenges of of self dependence and self respect and independence, uh, depending on others versus being self sufficient in social settings. These are things that are incredibly subtle and difficult, and um, Smith tries to counsel us on the challenges there. And I think we would be wise to take those challenges seriously. It's not straightforward to do, to be benevolent. It's easy to look benevolent. You know, virtue signaling is the modern equivalent of this. It's easy to look like you're doing the right thing. It's much harder to actually do the right thing. Right. And, and Smith labels these as prudence, justice, and beneficence. Yeah. And we can, of course, uh, shift gears right on over to uh, how to make the world a better place. And let's get into that. I like how you actually start off the discussion in that chapter because you enforce the idea that kind of seems counterintuitive that we're all simultaneously not in charge of the world, but we all simultaneously are in charge of the world. I thought that was very interesting. And, and, and you said that's the mindset you need to first accept and understand and act on if you really care about making the world a better place. Yeah. So underlying that idea is this idea that starts with Smith and his contemporaries, in particular Adam Ferguson, another Scottish thinker of Smith's time, uh, this idea of emergent order, the things that Adam Ferguson said were the result of human action, but not human design. There are so many things that we create through our own individual actions. Uh, some of them are relatively uh, 
unimportant or small, like the price of a house in a particular neighborhood. That's not set by anybody. It's not, it can be influenced by government policy, obviously, uh, in all kinds of ways. But in general, what price you set for your house when you want to sell it, uh, it's an illusion that it's your choice. If you pick a price that's too high, you mm -hmm. won't sell your house. If you pick a price that's too low, you'll uh, have a thousand people banging on your door and you won't know how to choose among them. They'll start fighting over getting this bargain that you've uh, accidentally created through your mispricing. So when you, then you step back and say, well, if, if I don't, if I set a high price, I can't sell it. If I set a low price, I have all these people swarming around my house. How do I figure out what the right price is? And the right price is the price that's set by all the interactions of buyers and sellers in what we call a market. And it's a very um, unintuitive idea that you learn about if you take economics in, in, a, in a decent economics class. But that's happening in all kinds of ways outside of economics, this idea of emergent order, the idea that things occur without uh, anyone being in charge of them. So we're in charge of these things. You know, I use the book in the book I use the example of of language. You know, what's an acceptable way to speak? What's a that Google is a verb to Google something is a decision that was not made by a committee was not made by Google. They're against it. It hurts their ability to keep their trademark. But we, meaning all of us through our individual actions and through word of mouth and our countless decisions of how we write and speak, created Google as a verb. And there mm -hmm. are so many things like that. Uh, how close we stand to each other, whether we wear a hat, uh, the length of a, a skirt or dress, the sleeve, the colors. These are all things that Yes, there are people who try to influence them. There are celebrities who have influence on these things uh, of how we behave. But a lot of times they just bubble up from the infinite decisions that so many of us are making. And that's um, once you see that, once you see the world that way, you realize that fixing it is complicated because things that you don't like in the world aren't necessarily any one person's fault. Like, who do you blame for traffic? <laughs> it, it, <laughs> At 8.30 in the morning trying to get to work. Everybody's driving slowly in front of you. Is it their fault? They all think it's everybody else's fault. Of course it is. It's our mutual decision to all try to get somewhere at the same time in the morning that slows everything down. But a lot of times I want to blame someone. Oh, the people who built this road, they didn't make it wide enough. Or, you know, I don't like the way the uh, – I don't like the, 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 the prices of housing in this certain city. They're too high. We've got to do something about that. Then you find out that to do something about it is not so straightforward, or at least to do something mm -hmm. that is that is actually helpful. It's, you know, we we tend to. Th I use the metaphor I think in the book of uh, turning down the stereo. You come home in the middle of the day and you find your your stereos on your music systems on, and it's blaring incredibly loudly. You're you're pretty confident somebody turned it up, so you go turn it down. Well, how do you turn down the traffic? It's not the same process, but our mind often thinks that it is. Our natural impulse is to see those things as similar. And that's a uh, a mistake, I think, when we think about how to make the world a better place. I like that in your quote, in your little fun example there. Oh, well, it's their fault. A lot of people do kind of take comfort in that. Well, they should do something about this. Yeah, they. Yeah, it's very interesting. And, and so that was how to make the world a better place real quick. And then you flip over in the book to how to not make the world a better place. And you, you commented before that, you know, social norms for better or for worse and, and and human action on bubbles if you will from the from the bottom up we're making these decisions every day and you encourage us to remember that the idea that the man of system will not make the world a better place this is something that we, we should not be thinking is a good idea and we should not hope to rely on so why don't we get into exactly what smith means by the man of system and then you can also talk about why it's not going to make the world a better place so smith talks about the man of system as the person who has a 
a vision of how to make the world work that isn't consistent with human nature, basically, and who sees the the metaphor he uses is the chessboard. He sees the human, the citizens of the of, of the nation, say, as pieces uh, on a chessboard. He can move without taking account of their own independent movements. So he just assumes we can move them here and there willy-nilly, and they'll stay there, forgetting that there are these offsetting, counterbalancing moves that individuals make when they're told to do things that are not in their own self-interest or that is not what they want. Uh, you know, obvious example in America would be the war on drugs. A lot of people think drugs are bad for you. I think they are too. I don't use them myself, uh, recreational drugs. But to suggest that I can solve, putting that word in quotes, solve that problem by just a stroke of the pen and making them illegal, that the set of things that have happened in America in response to the the eagerness we have to stop people from doing something that they really want to do, even if it's a good idea to stop them, but but we can't stop them actually. We haven't. We drove the drug market underground, which led to their prices being a lot higher, which led to crime and death and murder in the name of people seeking out the profits that are now available for those scarce, much scarcer things. It's just this cascade of, of, of consequences that come from, even if it's a good urge to protect people from themselves, I don't think it is. I think it's a mistake. But even if you think that's a good idea, you want to look and see if it actually works. And so many of the things that we do to, quote, help people uh, through public policy actually have negative consequences for the people we're trying to help. And I think Smith, um, that's really what Smith had in mind when he talked about the mana system. One last question before we we do our formal wrap up we always do on the episode as our time is pretty much winding down here and wound down. Maybe there's not uh, a right or wrong or, or easy answer to this, but maybe just wonder, wonder aloud a little bit with me here. Do, do you think Smith ultimately intended his book to inspire people and make them think of how to be better people ultimately? Or was it just uh, a matter of intellectual curiosity? He was, of course, a very, you know, a, a very serious thinking person, or maybe it was a bit of both. Uh, you, you've read a lot, all obviously, both The Wealth of the Nations and The Theory of Moral Sentiments. You've written a book about how Adam Smith can change our life. That's what he can do. But what what do you think he intended, maybe, if you could, if you've gathered that from from all your thinking on this? I don't know if he ever gave that much thought. I, I, I He certainly never as far as I know, never reflected on it in a public way in his writing. Um, I think that's, I don't think that's changed much since 1759. I think people write books and champion ideas and share thoughts for a multitude of reasons. Uh, one of them I like to think is to make the world a better place. Some of it's self-expression, mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the urge that we have to put a dent in the universe to, to have somebody pay attention to us, right? Uh, Smith wrote because I think he didn't have much of a choice. He felt that's what he was here to do. Um, I think he'd be very surprised and happy that people still pay attention to him in 2020 that we're talking about him. Um, I don't know if he ever worried about that. Um, I like this line from the Talmud. I probably quote in the book. It's not up to you to finish the work, but neither are you free to desist from it. So you're not going to solve every problem with how you spend your life. Uh, you're not going to be perfectly happy. But part of what we we do while we're here on this earth is we try to get better. We try to help others um, for the multitude of reasons that we've talked about, That some of which are self-interested, some of which because we care about what other people think of us. could be because we were raised that way. could be because we think we're supposed to for religious reasons, uh, to please God. 
uh, some because there's no other choice, some because it makes us happy. Uh, so I think Smith was probably pretty complicated on this. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wasn't, I don't think he was fit for a lot of the tasks of 1759. He found one that worked for him, which was teaching and, and being a professor and writing books. And uh, he followed his, his instincts. So Russ, we've talked about a lot. Let's bring it full circle if we can and try and put a finer point on our exploration of the question. In each episode, I want the guests to have the last word. So let me ask you, what do you ultimately hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on how Adam Smith can change their life? Well, it wouldn't be a bad idea to, to read some Adam Smith. The Theory of Moral Sentiments is available free online at the Library of Economics and Liberty, a site I'm involved with that hosts my podcast, Econ Talk. So uh, you could go back and honor him by uh, reading some of his original work. Um, and you'll find it's not an easy book to read. Every page of it's pretty accessible. The book as a whole is a little bit challenging, which is why I tried to write my book to make it a little more understandable. But he's a great writer. He's funny. He's wry. He's insightful. Um, it's worth reading. So take a look at that. And what you should take away from it, you know, you take away from it what works what you know speaks to you but the thing that i take away from it that i think is is the most useful is i'll put it in a simpler way than uh than than smith did riffing on his phrase i'll just say be lovely um act in ways that uh encourage people to respect you and that you can respect yourself for is um is it is a good is a good piece of advice and uh, if the impartial spectator helps you get there, uh, use it. And uh, everyone listening, uh, if you think to yourself that you're still not going to find time to maybe trudge through the theory of moral sentence, I definitely recommend you check out uh, How Adam Smith Can Change Your Life by, by Russ. Uh, I, Russ, I really enjoyed it. And I think uh, at, at least that book can maybe change people's perspective, if not their life as well, when they think of these things. So, so I thought it was an excellent book. I encourage everyone to read it. Russ, thank you so much for joining us today on The Curious Task. Thank you, Alex. Had a great time. This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. <laughs>